Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, Solar Warriors, we're bringing to you another special report. I know this is a little atypical for the typical Suncast flow Tuesdays and Thursdays, but we've had a few really cool things pop into our sphere of influence that didn't necessarily fit in our editorial calendar. So I'm playing around with this Monday version of the show with timely tidbits of information and advice, market experts to give you some current events of flavor. If you like it, let me know. Email me, nico at mysuncast.com. I'm stoked that you've decided to join us here and level up your game. Remember, you can always come back tomorrow on Tuesday, Thursday for longer form episodes. Hit that subscribe button right there in the podcast player that you're listening in. You can get more resources just like what you're going to hear from today's guest over at mysuncast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you'll know when we do go live. Occasionally we do these variety shows on Friday on LinkedIn Live and a few other things that are particularly interesting to you. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we're going to tune in and hear all about the Low Carbon Solar Alliance here on Suncast. Well, I am sure that you clicked through today because... The subject said low carbon solar, and you're curious just what that means. Or maybe you know our guest, Mr. Michael Parr, and you're just interested to see what Michael's up to and what he has to contribute to the Suncast tribe. For those of you who are unaware, Michael is an accomplished regulatory and legislative advocate with a ton of experience at companies that you would recognize, like DuPont, nearly 30 years there as a governmental affairs executive. Michael is also a trusted advisor, as you will hear, not just here uh, stateside, but also internationally when it comes to environmental affairs, as he is a expert on environment, energy, agriculture, sustainability, and manufacturing. Michael, welcome to Suncast. Pleasure to be here, Nico. Michael, I'd love to hear, before we get into the, the core topic, how did you find yourself sticking to a nearly 30-year career in DuPont in environment and energy public affairs. In particular, was there a path that you navigated that gave you more or less exposure to the energy side of the business and renewables? I'm an environmental professional from my original roots. I was a geologist and, believe it or not, started life in the oil and gas industry somewhere back in the Cretaceous period. And when Congress passed the Superfund law, which if you all ask your grandparents about Superfund, they can tell you what that was. But all of a sudden, we needed geologists in the United States to understand some environmental problems. And that dragged me out of the jungles of South America back to the U.S. and was involved in a lot of the very early understanding of groundwater contamination and how you cleaned up contaminated sites. And that led DuPont to come ask me to give them a hand with some things. And that led me to stick around there for 30 years and work my way through a number of global roles Focused on energy and environment, a big chunk of that focused on 
public policy around energy environment sustainability. Very involved in climate change for quite a long time and actually helped to write the uh, Waxman-Markey bill that went down to such noble feet. And as part of that, helped DuPont's energy-facing businesses advance their market opportunities, including several different solar businesses. And so I came to really appreciate the power of renewables in the climate fight. And I think that set me up well for my current role. Michael, I would totally agree. And uh, in a minute, I want to come back to some of the work that you did at DuPont. But could you take a moment and explain how on the sort of the public international stage for solar energy in particular, as many of us have seen at the utility scale, RFPs, the concept of embodied carbon as a price mechanism came into existence? So a solar panel is like any other manufactured good. It comes from a supply chain. And there are plants that manufacture the materials that go into solar. And some of these are very energy intensive to manufacture, particularly polysilicon, because it's an ultra pure material. And since you have to refine it to get to a solar grade polysilicon. And some companies run really clean plants, pulling power from pretty clean grids. So the amount of supply chain carbon emissions associated with their manufacturing is fairly low. Some companies, not so much. And they draw from coal-fired power and don't focus very much on energy efficiency. And so they have pretty high carbon footprints. And if you replicate that along each step in the solar value chain, by the time you get to the finished module in the market, you can have markedly different levels of carbon intensity in that supply chain. And we call that the embodied carbon sort of inherent in each of those modules. And we became, I think, really aware of this. We've all known for a long time that uh, China was using a lot of coal in their manufacturing and their in their energy grid in general. But a few years ago, the French government actually put some embodied carbon requirements in place for their public PV tax. And that required everybody in the industry to run out and do life cycle analyses to look at the carbon intensity of their part of the solar value chain. And all of a sudden, low carbon producers finding their products doing very well in that French market, a little light bulb went off. And that caused a little deeper dive into what the differences in supply chain carbon look like and led to the, the awareness that uh, there was some there there that the market needed to have a better understanding of. Michael, something tells me this isn't the first time that this has come across your desk. How much of this work had you been exposed to back in the DuPont days that helped inform why you know, someone with your expertise might be called upon by international markets to take a look at this and, and seek to see if there's a there there, as you said. So I think several strands come together here, Nico. One is, as I mentioned, DuPont had several different products that we sold into the solar market, including Tedlar backsheet and some high efficiency metal pastes. And we realized that our products both increased efficiency in the finished module, but also contributed to longevity. And this was at a period when 20 years seemed like a really long lifespan for a module. And so we put together the case for both the market and policymakers that how you buy solar makes a big difference in the lifetime carbon performance, because the longer the life of the module, the longer you have to pay off the carbon inherent in making that module. And so that model was already kind of well embedded in my, in my memory banks. And I had also, in doing a lot of work on broader climate change and carbon policy, had a lot of focus on so-called scope three emissions. 
upstream supply chain options and how policy tools can help get at those effectively, not just the emissions that are coming directly from your manufacturing plant, but how your buying behavior might have some environmental benefits. There is on many different levels at the retail, an increasing push and has been you know, through the sustainability movement for a long time of being able to trace the carbon footprint of your purchases as, as a consumer and at a retail level. You know, as someone who not only has been in the solar industry for 15 plus years, but also worked at one of the largest Chinese module manufacturers and having been involved in, you know, creating all types of uh, FUD for selling against counterparts, I think that it's incredibly interesting that it never really came to surface this idea that of the carbon footprint. Everyone talks about the years to get back to net zero energy, right? That the solar panel itself will pay off the energy used to create it. But it's fascinating to me that we are now able to scientifically check out and track the carbon footprint of that panel. Can you speak a bit to the coalition that has begun to form and now is known as the Ultra Low Carbon Solar Alliance that intends to put numbers and statistics around the differentiating factors that are tied to this carbon footprint at a scientific level? The alliance members span the entire solar value chain. So we have polysilicon producers like REC, Vocker, Hemlock, who, because they operate in highly competitive market and don't experience the deep subsidies that some of their competitors in East Asia get. And because they're major energy consumers have focused relentlessly on energy efficiency. And so they run really tight plants with lots of internal recycle, lots of energy efficiency steps and draw from pretty clean grids. And they did that for decades in part, just as a simple good way of doing business. It had salutary benefit of meaning quite a small carbon footprint for their polysilicon. Similarly, we have the Norwegian ingot wafer producers, Norsun, Norwegian crystals, hydropower, lots of internal recycle, very innovative firms, extremely low carbon footprint. And we also have some real innovators in the mix. Uh, 1366 Technologies are developing a so-called curfless wafer technology, which avoids the drawing of the ingot and sawing of the wafer, which are obviously energy consuming steps. And then QCells. On the cells module side, we also have REC Solar, who uses very low carbon poly in their modules. Thrilled to have Meyer Berger recently joined, who is making a major business shift from just equipment to they're just about to open their first header junction module facility. Really excited about that. And, uh, and a stalwart of low carbon production for solar uh, is one of our sounding, founding members. All right. So you've got Salesforce for your sales team. How's that working out for you? How great would it be if someone could actually just come in and really make your whole solar sales process deliver results? And what's more, what if you could actually see all the sales data in one dashboard? Pipeline, forecast, aging, deals that are about to close, the whole darn thing. Look, I have someone who can help do all that. They're called Indium. And right now, for a limited time, you can get a Salesforce tune-up, a process assessment from them entirely on the house. Just click on the Endium logo over at mysuncast.com and start getting more value from Salesforce finally. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help 
organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15-minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out if this sounds remotely interesting to you. And let's have a chat. See if there is, in fact, a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways. You know, all, all of the folks that are part of the coalition, of course, are uh, in, on some level, either U.S. companies or producing and with the capacity to produce here stateside. I think that at first blush, certainly as a old solar sales guy, the question that comes to my mind is what's in it for the consumer? I, I buy stuff right now that I know has a higher carbon footprint, but I buy it because it's easier on my wallet than it is on my conscience right now. Uh, and, and if we're looking to scale this industry, do we need another layer that potentially means we're going to have to pay more for solar panels to, to ease that, that conscious layer of, uh, of carbon footprint? So let me start with the simple fact that these modules are in the market today competing head-to-head with these produced modules. Right. As you well know, this is a commoditized market. And so there is no premium pricing on ultra low carbon solar today. And part of that is because most of the embodied carbon arises in the manufacturing polysilicon and the ingot wafer, because those are the most energy intensive steps. Wafers have gotten so thin that the amount of polysilicon in the average module is pretty damn small. And at the system level, combined cost of poly ingot wafers on the order of eight cents on the dollar. And so you get big leverage on carbon, relatively small impact on price. And as to why the market would care, if you think about the main drivers for solar expansion, they really are sustainability, small carbon footprint. If you have a choice of dramatically improving the overall carbon footprint of the solar you buy merely by how you buy it, if you say, tell you what, give me module A instead of module B, you can avoid significant coal-fired power plant emissions in Xinjiang, China, because you're not going to get polysilicon from there in your module. And so it is a very easy and simple way for particularly the direct corporate purchasers of the world who have substantial goals on both sustainability, carbon, and broader ESG platforms to say, I'm starting to get at my scope three emission in how I buy solar. And there's, an, as you noted before, an intense focus on supply chain emissions. When, when Larry Fink of BlackRock is telling companies they need to be paying attention to this, you know it's pretty mainstream. But it's not easy to do for the big industries like cement, steel, gas. They're very complex supply chains. Traceability is perilously difficult. Bowler's a pretty compact little supply chain, right? There are half a dozen steps, 10 tier one suppliers at each step most of whom have already done these life cycle analyses so that they can sell their product into the French market. As a buyer, 
you can take advantage of all that prior work and make some meaningful reductions in your scope three emissions just by buying better solar. And since you are buying solar to reduce carbon in the first instance, it just seems to us a pretty natural play. And if I heard you correctly, you said it's as much as half. Can you give those statistics again? So this has been demonstrated a number of times. The, the first major academic work on this was a paper by Argonne National Labs in Northwestern in 2014. And they showed about 50% lower embodied carbon in modules coming out of the Western supply chain versus based in the, the Western China poly supply chain. That data, you know, a little old by now, the most recent lifecycle inventory data from the International Energy Agency's EV group says the gap has narrowed a little bit. So maybe it's 40%, not 50%, but essentially the same answer almost 10 years on. And so the data is pretty clear. And if, if you look at the press releases from the major polysilicon producers in China, every time they announce a new plant, they say, and we're billing it in Xinjiang because cheap coal-fired power. So there's not a great deal of mystery about what's going on. I guess one of the things I'm confused about, there's a couple of things I'm still a little bit unclear on. It's not clear to me yet if this is just a polysilicon calculation, and therefore there are Asian suppliers and uh, I'll say non-US suppliers who also qualify. Is there a way that folks can choose ultra-low carbon solar and distinguish who qualifies and who doesn't? So poly is the biggest source of embodied carbon in the module, but not the only source. So there are levels of embodied carbon throughout the supply chain. Needless to say, it's more concentrated in the more energy-intensive steps, thus poly and and ingot wafer. Um, There is low-carbon poly production in the U.S. and in Europe, as I mentioned, but there are also hydro-based poly plants in eastern China. And so China does provide modules into the French market. They do have some capacity to make low-carbon poly. And, you know, our view is not this is EU, U.S. versus China. This is cleaner solar versus less clean solar. As to how you can document it, it's pretty straightforward already. So we already know the French are doing this for their market. They've got a methodology they've developed. Everybody's done their life cycle assessments. There's a brand new environmental product declaration, which is basically a standard set of rules for calculating the environmental footprint of your product uh, that were developed in Norway. Solar companies are starting to qualify for those. One of the major third-party eco-label developers with robust supply chain verification processes is developing an ultra-low carbon solar standard and eco-label to facilitate specification. So the same way you might specify, you know, I only want Energy Star products, you can simply you can simply specify I only want ultra-low carbon solar products and not have to worry about doing those life cycle studies yourself. Should we expect to see like an, you know, the way FSC, Forest Stewardship Council has their little leaf. Maybe we'll expect to see a a similar mark, ultra low carbon ULC. It sounds to me like it may as well pattern a bit to the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition Index, which was often used, has been used to point to bad actors in the marketplace who in their manufacturing process, do create toxic waste and aren't, uh, you know, caring for the environment. You know, before we uh, get too far afield here, I have another question because you brought up capacity. You mentioned that there is an Eastern, uh, there are some Eastern Chinese players that are using low carbon, ultra low carbon, or low carbon, at least polysilicon supply. 
a lot of folks here may think, well, that sounds all well and good. But my experience is that when we get outside of the traditional Asian supply chain, it's just super constrained. And yes, I can buy it. And maybe it's carbon, it's price neutral, but is there enough of it to really meet the market need? That, of course, is the, the big question that everybody asks about this supply chain. And they're asking it for lots of reasons, of course. It's not just carbon. I think people are becoming increasingly aware about the security ramifications of being very highly dependent on uh, one nation for our largest growing source of energy. Uh, I think there are supply chain resilience issues, so there's a host of things. The answer is, this is not a snapshot. This is a journey. So there's enough low-carbon polysilicon production capacity in the U.S. and in Europe to serve both of those markets with ultra-low-carbon solar modules today. Wafer capacity is a bit of a choke point because that is concentrated now, wildly concentrated in China. But they can buy low-carbon German poly without any tariffs in China, and they do. They can buy low-carbon Chinese poly. And if the market is saying, look, I'm only going to buy low-carbon modules, they're going to figure out a way to get their hands on low-carbon poly to serve that market. Right? This, is how, this is how capitalism works. And so the way we envision this working is we get the market signal sent. Is the entire U.S. going to shift immediately? It's not, right? So Google's going to move, then Amazon's going to join in, and then Facebook. And then the utilities are going to say, I need to be on this. And then the rooftop guys are going to say, what's going on there? Maybe I need to be on this. This market signal will grow. The supply chain will adapt to that. I, I already know that there are ingot wafer companies looking at the U.S. as potential investment destinations because they're starting to feel these market signals already. Um, and a, a more compact supply chain in the U.S. has some benefits, and there's good decarbonized grids here to draw power from. And so we would envision over time, the U.S. and EU markets will move first, and that's good, but probably insufficient. Because at the end of the day, solar is slated to grow dramatically in the next 30 years, more than we've grown in the last 30. And what we don't want is simply to reorient supply chains and have all that growth happen in coal-fired plants in China. We want the signal to go across the supply chain to say, by all means, grow in China. We need your capacity. We need your scale. We don't need your carbon. So make those next investments in poly in the East. You got the free gorges down, take advantage of it, use it so that solar becomes an inherently more sustainable energy source as we use it more and more. We'd also like them to deal with some of their other sustainability issues in that supply chain that are less focused for us than others. You know what's going on in Xinjiang and the forced labor concerns. In many ways, we think ultra-low carbon solar is a proxy for many of those sustainability concerns and, and an easy way for companies to try to get at this broader list of concerns in how they purchase. It's a shot across the bow for the industry, and uh, I expect it'll be heard loud and clear. It certainly is. I've noticed how uh, the message is resonating with a number of our colleagues in the media. Uh, kudos to you for the amount of vocal support you've been able to receive in a relatively short amount of time. Are there any other longer term goals that we should be aware of uh, or could potentially try to support and, uh, and understand better with regards to the Ultra Low Carbon Solar Alliance? Let me first be really clear. All solar is good, right? So the, 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 the folks out there who want to say, oh my goodness, see saying how bad solar is. See, solar, not so. All solar is good, but some solar is distinctly better. And so this is really 
a signal to the industry, let's grow better. Let's make sure that as solar becomes more and more the predominant form of electricity in the world, as we electrify transportation, as we electrify buildings, let's make solar an even better con- contributor to climate change improvement. And the technology is before us. We, this is not hard to do. We know how to do this. It's pretty straightforward. So I would like to see a broader sustainability trend within the industry. I would like to see, in many ways, I think because the supply chain is more straightforward here, we are creating a model that will be useful to help others figure out how to decarbonize some of these other more difficult supply chains. And so in many ways, this is sort of training wheels on scope three emissions activities. And that's why we know a number of other organizations that are deeply involved in supply chain emissions concerns have been talking to us and are very interested in what we're doing uh, just because they see the this model of market forces as a way to drive decarbonization can be a pretty powerful tool. Well, Michael, we usually wrap with a question looking out into the future, and I'm going to tailor this crystal ball with a little bit of some parameters. As we look out on the horizon uh, at a future where we could potentially enjoy a clean zero carbon supply chain for solar panels, what does your crystal ball say about the timeline for the potential of that reality? When when could we get to what looks like 100% decarbonized supply chain for solar? That's a no small challenge, right? But if you think about where we are today, we've got good hydro capacity around the world. We can decarbonize poly ingot wafer reasonably well. You know, I'm not going to say we're going to get to zero everywhere, but we can dramatically a low carbon poly and ingot wafer in this next tranche of, of investment. And that's where most of the carbon comes from. And so the, the cell and module, if you're doing that in any kind of reasonably clean grid, you're probably fine. You're not, you know, you're 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 contributing to the solution more than the problem. I do think the timing question is really one of what is the public tolerance for high carbon solar, right? And I do think this confluence of labor issues, forced labor issues, and greater awareness of the carbon emissions are coming together to really make people take a hard look at this. And in, in my experience, when markets move, they can move perilously fast. And as a business person, where you don't want to be is on the wrong side of that market. Either you don't want to be the the big branded company who's still using dirty modules when everybody else is gone, wait a minute, what's going on there? And you don't want to be the solar producer who has put all of your eggs in high carbon polysilicon basket because all of a sudden it might be really hard to sell those modules in large parts of the world. To me, the cautionary tale is, I think I mentioned I started life in the oil and gas industry long ago. Exxon was the biggest gorilla in the room for a long, 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 long time. They're not on the Dow anymore. And their share price ain't looking so good because all of a sudden, all of those reserves of oil and gas don't have the value they once did. And their lack of a business model that is sufficiently adaptive to the changing energy environment has left them struggling. And if it can happen to Exxon, it can happen to anybody. I think those are fitting words uh, to part with. If it can happen to Exxon, it can happen to anybody. Keep your eyes open, folks. Uh, We are happy to have Michael Parr, the executive director of the Ultra Low Carbon Solar Alliance here to help us better understand this complex and important topic. Michael, thank you for joining us on Suncast. 
been a pleasure, Nico, and, uh, and thanks to your listeners for listening in. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, what did you think of that? That's a wrap on this conversation with Michael and this sensitive spotlight on a conversation that I hadn't been aware of. I want to give a hat tip to the folks that are working hard with the Ultra Low Carbon Solar Alliance and, and in particular, Mike Casey and Mark Sokolov over at TigerCom for helping bring this to my awareness and now to yours. In fact, I am going to be having one of our 12.30 p.m. LinkedIn Live happy hours on this coming Friday, April 2nd. And I'm going to have Mike Casey come join in on the conversation. And we might have Mike Parr, Michael Parr, join us as well. I'd love to have you join us. Bring your questions, bring your lunch or your late Friday, your mid-Friday afternoon Eastern time cocktail. And let's discuss what the uh, ongoing conversation has been for the week in climate and clean tech. look forward to having that conversation with you. You can check out that and every other announcement or event that we are promoting over at mysuncast.com and as well linking to us on LinkedIn. At the show notes for this episode, as always, you will find the links for the conversation that I've had today with Michael, as well as how to connect with Michael and I on LinkedIn and other social networks. Please do join us again tomorrow for our Tactical Tuesday and again on Thursday for our deep dive. Hope to see you on Friday on LinkedIn. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.